guess I'll just hold it. No, don't hold it. You just got this whole mic stand set up. Well, I had a mic stand before, and it was kind of piss poor. I don't know. I'm just... What, what happened to that? Remember, I sent, didn't I send you a little arm, a little articulated microphone arm? Yeah. Here, hold on for a sec. <clears throat> Can you hear me now? Yeah, that sounds good. Would you wait? Say some, say something better. What'd you have for breakfast? Uh, I just ate a sandwich like ten minutes ago. Uh, that's my. That was probably as close to breakfast as I'm going to get. For our listeners, it is one uh, nineteen in the afternoon. <laughs> so I don't know. Actually, I don't. Know, I actually don't know what your schedule looks like. So I, for me, I'm done with. Uh, you know, our our big convention season is over. We finished uh, Gen Con and packs and I, I get to be back in Chicago for um, a couple of weeks before I have any more, you know, we have a, a couple last little sort of events and stuff coming up. Um, but this is sort of the time of the year and the time of my life where I've been like for the last three or four months, I've been in this like crazy hustle of events going from thing to thing to thing. And I've been pushing every problem in my life, just push it off, push it off after packs, after packs, after packs. And now I come back after packs and just all the flaming, wreckage of my life is just like raining down around me (laughs) yeah yeah that sounds that sounds a little familiar uh i i think i think i have uh i think i have heard of that happening to to other people uh specifically me uh So are you in the oh. are you in the midst of like like post convention? Uh, I don't even know what you call it. Just like crashing down to earth. You know the um, I think part of it, it I, I'm probably going to be dealing with that in a slightly delayed way because I came back from PAX same time as you pretty much, but then I immediately left uh, to head out to New York again just, I just got back from New York yesterday. So I had like a marvelous, like four days. It felt more like a layover than coming home. Um, you know, I, I came, uh, came back on Monday from PAX and then I left on Thursday, uh, to head out to New York, uh, where I caught fun home. Um, oh, very jealous that you got to see that. I've heard. I've heard that show is unbelievable, and uh, I think it's ending soon. It it ended the night that I saw it, and uh. I'm so sorry. You know, and you know, and if there's one thing worse than being a huge geek for Hamilton, and like talking about a show that, you know, t- it's kind of sold out, and besides, everyone knows that it's awesome. It's like now I want to talk about Fun Home, a show that literally does not exist. You cannot go see it somewhere. Um, (laughs) Fun Home is uh, a musical adaptation of a comic book that is by uh, Allison uh, Bechdel. 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 Well, only if you want to say it correctly. Thank you. You have three different ages of this character. You have her as a little girl. Her is like when she was in college and her as an adult when she was writing this comic. Different characters are on stage at the same time. And so she as adult is on stage watching her younger self do things. And like not 
providing peanut gallery commentary and not doing anything dramatic. Like occasionally you see her like she, she like puts her head in her hands or she or she will say like, oh, God, this was embarrassing. But the fact that you're watching her watch her life, it was crazy. It was crazy how how big an effect that had on just like what this musical was. I watched it and I watched this dad and it was kind of horrifying watching him like this guy who has like some obvious control issues and a mood disorder and who loves his kids. But sometimes he is so just freaking out of control, angry. And, you know, it connected to me probably in a really different way than it connected to a lot of other people in the theater. Like, I'm not saying I act like him, I, but I absolutely feel like that character behaved a lot, you mm. know, where there was this scene where, you know, young Allison was like drawing something. He's like, we're doing a class project. You know, it's like we're supposed to draw our family, a, a map of our family. And so here's this and here's this and here's this. And she shows it to her dad and he's like, oh, sweetie, this is good. But you've got like 40 things here. It's got to be kind of more cohesive. You got to, you got to make it clearer to people. And she's like, it's a comic. You can have a lot of things in a comic. And he's like, well, sweetie, if you're going to do this, you should do it well. And, you know, and he just takes it over and he's like, no, no, this way. No, you don't understand this way. And then finally he's like, he's like, God damn it. If you're going to show it to people, it should be good. And if you want it to be good, just shut up and just fucking listen to me and do it the right way. And here, just God, just let me fucking do it. And I watch this and I'm like, I'm like, this is how I feel all the time. Um, huh. you know, not just, not just, you know, in the world in general and with projects that I'm doing, but yeah, it, it absolutely rears up when I'm interacting with my children and I am my, I am at my best as a father when I am actively trying to overcome these issues, but like to, to deny that they are there would be a huge disservice to my kids because sometimes I, I do not control that impulse as much as I want to. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a little spooky watching that on stage. Yeah. I, I, uh, I definitely see that impulse in myself. It's funny cause my parents did that to me. I mean, with almost anything I was into as a kid and you know I it's hard because like I was really into like making making movies and, and editing video back when you did like VHS to VHS editing you know things like that <laughs> yeah um, that was a, a big hobby of mine and you know I'd work for a long time on these videos and I'd show it to my parents and they, my mom would come back with like a pad of notes and she'd be like all right, who's ready for notes? She's like, I've got, she's like, let's, let's start from the top. Like, here's all the, all the changes that, that <laughs> we should have or whatever. And so I respect that. It's like, you know, it's like a, like, I think it, I think that stuff stung. Cause like, she generally had a good point of like, well, it should have been better edited or, you know, it's like the, and you know, m both of my parents did, you know, they were, they were you know, visual people and they worked in advertising and they're good writers. And like, they ha always had, good feedback on stuff I did. It's not necessarily, of course, like what you're looking for when you're a kid and you show your parents like something cre <laughs> creative. You're not looking for them to sort of like gut it. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but nonetheless, like I have a hard time, you know, now, like when I look back on that, cause you know, now whatever, it's like you know, 20 years later, 
fundamentally I haven't changed when I'm 10 years old. I have the same relationship with criticism of like, I, all I want is for everyone to tell me all the things that they liked and all and how good everything I made is. That's really all I want to ever hear. But if they, people do tell me that, I immediately, I know that I become suspicious because I'm like, well, why aren't you telling me all the problems with it? It's a crazy, I mean, I don't know. It's just, I mean, that's partially, I just think that's like, and and then, oh, and the other complicating thing is, of course, just like you're saying with your kids, like I see the same instinct in myself of like Veronica did, you know, when she was working on her, she did, um, I published this uh, comic book of her PhD thesis for for, uh, her uh, chemistry PhD. And, you know, there were a lot of like conversations where she was working on this, working really incredibly hard on this Kickstarter project. And, you know, I, I forget often like how, how, you know, the idea of selling yourself of like taking something that's your life's work and packaging it and selling it and asking for money for it is how I forget how unsavory and difficult and emotional and terrible that is and how hard it is. And she would work on this really hard and did like a great cut of a video. Right. And she'd bring it to me and he'd be like, all right, where do you want the problems like alphabetically or in order of how bad they are? <laughs> you know? And it's like, and it's like, well, I do I, I, to my, def- in my defense, like I do know a lot about doing Kickstarter projects and I probably had very good feedback of how she could improve it. But like, I'm never, I never have figured out. I, I know it's interesting. Cause I never know when I get criticism where I want that line and I never know how to give it to other people. And as a result, I, I mostly just uh, if it's someone who doesn't is not like subordinate to me, like they don't work for me. Like I mostly just don't give them criticism of their work. And I'll also add uh, complicating this whole this whole mess is when, when someone is subordinate to me and they do work for me, I am fucking terrible giving them feedback. And I have I often am frankly a bully and not in a way where I, I don't realize it until afterwards where I go in and I'm and I give people and I'm just like, well, everything is wrong and this needs to be destroyed and and clearly you know like i know you're competent so the only explanation is that you didn't try hard enough (laughs) you know i mean but i don't say that but that's the subtext of it right of like you know of like this is garbage and i can't possibly understand what was going through your head when you made this and let's redo it exactly how i want i say that all the time to people and i don't realize until i'm thinking about it like the next day or later that night and i'm like wow i was such an asshole to that person yeah, the that's one thing where I I do think I have a bit of a leg up because I was lucky enough to uh, get involved. Uh, I don't know what it's called at other universities, but in our university, it was called the Tutoring Learning Center, uh, which is a great acronym, by the way. You would go to visit the TLC, <laughs> and uh, and and that wasn't an accident either that they they d- developed that acronym. Because it wasn't just that they had uh, students tutoring other students, you know, peer tutoring. It's that they had uh, an actual practicum class. You would come in and you would take a semester's worth of 300 level class about how to be a peer tutor. Um, And if, you know, once you made it through that class, then you could engage in certain types of tutoring that just weren't available to you. You know, it's like, because it doesn't matter if you're good at math, that does not mean you can help other people on like, you can help other people understand the subject. Um, you know, honestly, sometimes a person who is straight up bad at calculus can be a better tutor just because they're a good tutor. Um, and so I went in and I was, I worked in the tutoring learning center for, 
the majority of my undergrad time, which by, you know, it was nine years. I spent nine years as an undergrad. So I think I was a peer tutor for seven of those, um, which means that <laughs> they kind of had to invent new stratifications in the tutor hierarchy for me, because typically like the most years you could be a tutor was three because most people graduate in four years or five years. Um, but you know, I stuck around and you know, then eventually they're like, why don't you help us let, why don't you help us train new tutors? And then it's like, well, how about you develop some materials that tutors can use? How about you start, you know, mentoring tutors? How about, um, uh, you know, how about, and whenever they had a problem person come in, somebody who wanted help, but was really difficult to help, they would kind of, they would kind of punt those to me because I had been doing this a long time. So before it got to a point in my life when I really needed to address really big things like, you know, me working on my novel, for example, professionally, professionally receiving feedback, um, I had already been like legitimately trained up and had been through the fires of years of, of tutoring. Uh, and so in that respect, you know, I can be very good, which is not to say that I don't drop the ball, uh, especially if I get emotionally involved, uh, in, in whatever it is I'm talking about. Normally if I give feedback on somebody's manuscript, which is a lot of what happens. People want my opinion on a piece of writing, you know, and I'm, I'm very good about that. I'm very conscious of what I'm saying. You have to tell them what they're doing well, in addition to what needs to be done better. Because if you just, you know, you say, this is shit, this is shit, this is shit. They don't just go in and fix three things. They're going to scrap a bunch of the project, including the things they did well. Um, but, uh, you know, but what happened just very recently within the last year, um, one of the people that I work with, uh, you know, got published and she brought in, uh, you know, and I, and she, I talked to her about agents. She got an agent. She ended up with a good publisher. And then while she was going through revisions, I said, you know, I would be happy to take a look at your book and give you a little feedback if that'd be valuable to you. And so she did, she gave it to me and I came in and I red penned it up and, um, and I sat down with her, which, and it's really nice to be able to sit down physically with a person as opposed to doing it over the phone or through a letter. And so we sat down and because I really like her and I really care about the success of her novel and because, you know, uh, I was kind of excited at the thought of helping her and I really did like the book as well, um, I just, I forgot a lot of my good rules and we just talked and talked and talked and talked. And it wasn't until I finished that I went, fuck, you just gave this person like three hours of straight advice, which is wrong. It's just like, you know, like categorically wrong because no human being can sit and listen to three hours of even very well-intentioned critical advice, you fill up and you got to tune out. It's, it's overwhelming. So even though I knew better and I've been trained and I've got a ton of practice, I blew it in that regard. Um, her book is out now and it's, it's doing pretty well. Um, and, uh, so she survived it. 
despite my advice. I get emails every day. I get many, many emails from people every day. And they're like, hey, I'm working on X, Y, and Z. And in this case, like, let's say in this for the purposes of the scenario that I either know the person and I like them or we're like internet friends or something. And I, I genuinely have a desire to help the person because I know them. Or they reached out to me because they know their project is relevant to me and I really like the product. Even if I don't know them, I'm really into the project they're doing, right? So let's just say for the purposes of of, of this conversation, I, I, I genuinely want to respond to, all the, to these people who email me. These people email me every day, many, many people, and they're like, hey, I'm working on this so-and-so and I would really love to connect with you and get your advice on it. And so when I'm at conventions, I, it's easy. I'm just like, hey, I'm out of town. We could, you know, email me later. And then I come back and now my inbox, I have probably over a hundred of these like, hey, I just want to connect. Like, can we get yeah. lunch? Can I connect? Can we get coffee? I just really show you what I'm working on. I just want to get your feedback. I want you to help with this. I want that. And in some ways, if they were asking a, where I go, where, where this starts to, where it gets under my skin is like, if people were asking me for a discreet thing, right? If they were clear about what they wanted. So sometimes people are like, would you write the introduction to my book? I, I or blurb my book. I fucking love doing that. I'll always do that. And you know what? Honestly, especially if I'm going to read the book anyway, it's not that much work. It's just like really 15 minutes of like trying to write a, a catchy blurb or, or a, a little funny thing for them. I it is like it is like such an honor and it's so easy and I'm very happy to do that. If people want and then another mostly what people want is they're like, hey, you have a lot of like Twitter followers. I'm going to do something. Would you tweet about it? And frankly i don't really want to get coffee i don't want to you know, people always have in their mind it's like well let's go get coffee and you know i have this 10 minute meeting or we'll, have, well, we'll just meet for 20 minutes it'll be really quick right and i'll just like show you what i'm working on and then you can you can tweet about it or whatever and the thing is like it's not actually 20 minutes because the first thing is i have to stop what i'm doing here right so i have to get myself out of my meetings and stop what i'm doing here at the at the office and that right there, that's like 10 minutes of trying to pack my shit up and get out. And then I have to drive to the coffee shop and that's another 10 minutes. And I have to get there and get a drink and get a table and meet up with you. And then it's not like we sit down right away and we start talking about the project. It's like, well, we're going to have pleasantries and small talk and catch up on stuff. And there's another 10 minutes and then we'll start talking about the project and we'll, we won't finish that on time. So we're, that's another half hour right there. And then eventually I have to figure out how to leave the coffee gracefully. So that's another 10 minutes of me trying to back out of the conversation. And then I have to like drive back to the office. And then by the time when I get back to the office, before I can actually get back into like a state of flow where I'm doing work again, that's probably another hour, right? Cause I'm just like screwing around. You know, once you leave, it's like, it takes a long time to like get settled and sit down and start doing stuff again. So really yep. that's like a whole after, you know, that 20 minutes of, would you tweet about my thing? It's really almost my whole day at that point, or it's at least like my whole afternoon. And I really wish, and the thing is like, there's some stuff I want to tweet about. Like I'll tweet about world builders every year because I like it. And there's some stuff I will never tweet about. I just don't want to tweet about some random person's like game. Like it's just not, I, I think it's like rude to my followers to like constantly post links to things that I don't have any firsthand involvement or experience with. And right. I, well, so and I just wish people would be, so it's like, I don't really, I, I'm, I'm curious, like maybe if you have any advice for me on this or how you, you must get tons of this, right. Of like, would you read my book? Would you give me advice? Like, what do you, what do I do with this? Cause like, I really, I don't want to be an asshole. I really genuinely want to help these people. Yeah, it's, I was just gonna. I was gonna say this doesn't sound familiar at all. Although honestly, I know that you probably get it um, more, and you get it for a wider variety of things. Because you know, people probably aren't gonna want my advice for things that aren't directly in my wheelhouse. Now, admittedly, my wheelhouse 
my visible wheelhouse is bigger than a lot of other writers. I'm actively involved in the gaming community. I do a lot of role playing. Um, you know, I understand books and writing and stuff. Uh, but you are also like visibly, um, wired into the media in ways that I am not. And you're savvy about the production of goods, um, and the, you know, bringing projects to a fru uh, to fruition in a way that I obviously am not. Um, and so I think you, you get hit with a much broader band, um, of stuff. Also your, a lot of your work is kind of collaborative. Like you work with this place and you do a pack of cards and you work with these people and you do a game and, um, but no, you're right. I do, I do get hit up a lot. As a matter of fact, uh, 30 minutes before our, our meeting today, somebody texted me asking me if I could ask you, um, about, a, a particular thing. Um, <laughs> I, I, I genuinely think I probably only got good at making things because there were people who said that my shit was bad. And they were, but they were, but I, I respected that so much. And it was, you know, it's hard. It's uh, uh, people make lots of, like most of the stuff I make is shitty. Right. And people don't see it cause I don't release it cause it's shitty. Everybody makes shitty stuff. Every first draft of everything anyone has ever written is shitty except for Scalzi, who I think nails it the first time. But, uh, <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's like every, like, like everybody makes shitty stuff and it takes it. There's a kind of courage if someone shows you something and it's shitty to say to them, uh, hey, this is, you know, you probably know all the reasons why this is good, of course, because you made it, but it's kind of shitty, right? It has these problems with it and it's not finished and it's confusing and people aren't going to understand it. And I only, I mean, to be perfectly frank, like I thought I was amazing when I was in college and I was making shitty things. And it took, you know, there were, I can point to a few formative times in my life where uh, someone who I really really looked up to like a hero level person you know i got to saw they i got to show them my stuff or they were working with me on something and they said hey this is shit this is really bad you shouldn't you should be embarrassed to have made this and that was <laughs> and and it's it made me feel terrible but i it was that little nudge i needed to to push myself to improve right because if you get that complacency of like well i'm awesome and i there's no room for improvement here and everything is great well, how could you ever grow as an artist? So I, I, it's just such a tortured, it's like it's such a conflicted thing of like, I only am where I am because people gave me that harsh criticism and took the time. And also there is a, it's such a weird mix because you're being, you're kind of being this asshole to people, but it's also incredibly generous because you're spending your time like helping people and, and, and really deeply understanding what they're doing enough to give it good criticism. And here I am and like, I don't, and I really, I would love to do that for people, but I don't, I don't know how to, I don't know. I, I feel like I'm not hitting a good balance for people and it's hard for me to balance my time doing that. I don't know. It's like a weird, I feel really bad telling people I don't have time to, to help you with your thing. Well, th there's really, this is like a big snarl of like four different issues. Um, uh, and the first one is there was a really, a really great article that I read and it was called, no, I will not read your fucking screenplay. Um, and it was from this guy who works in Hollywood and he's a success. And, but, and then he told the story of how, you know, somebody, you know, came up to him at a party and said, Hey, you know, I know you must get this all the time, but 
you know, my brother-in-law, he's got this screenplay, um, and you know, he could really use a leg up and, uh, you know, it, it, could, could you help him out with this? And the guy's like, you know, you get, you do get it all the time when you're successful in Hollywood. And, but he's like, this guy is a friend, you know, or maybe it was, and I might be misremembering the relationships, you know, but it was effectively like a semi-intimate of a semi-intimate, you know, like a, a pretty good friend of a pretty good friend or a somewhat close relative of a somewhat close relative. And so, you know, he did what he knows not to do and what he typically doesn't do, which is say, yeah, sure. You know, I could, I could help this person out because, you know, if you're a success in anything, it's because somebody has helped you out at some point, whether or not you realize it. And he did it. And then he talks about the train wreck that this leads to where he goes and he reads the screenplay and there's a lot of problems in it, but he's promised to help this guy give and give him feedback. And it's not help to say, Oh, you're doing great tiger, you know, get out there and knock him dead to help somebody who's written something with problems. You really have to address the problems. So he sat down and he talked about the problems and the guy was really resistant, you know, to, to listening. And then, you know, and then like, but still he met, he like spent a couple hours working with this person and like managed to get through it. And then they left and he's like, well, you know, it took time to read the screenplay and time to worry about it and time to, you know, interact with this person. But, you know, I feel like I've given them some good advice and helped them out. And, and then the person goes back to where they were and immediately starts talking shit about this guy about how he is just an asshole and he's arrogant and he said all these terrible things about my craft. And, you know, and then of course he's so t bitter and twisted up that he just vomits negativity into like these social relationships. And so suddenly everyone is thinking that the guy who tried to, who read his screenplay is this raging asshole because this guy is so hurt and so whatever. And so it, it's, it, you know, I'll see if I can find a link for that that I can send to you because it, it's a really informative uh, article about how this shit kind of works sometimes. But there was really a, a couple of issues. One of them is what did this person really want? Because that person obviously did not want uh, – and the technical term for it is formative feedback. Um, what, what does because, that mean? Well, it means – you know, I am going to uh, give you feedback with the intention that you will use it to evaluate and improve this project as well as in all, you know, hopefully your engagement with this element of craft as a whole. And uh, and this is what a teacher's job is. You know, I taught freshman English for years and the purpose is not to get the person to write a really good essay because when in your life are you going to write a fucking essay? You know, the, the purpose is to give feedback uh, to a person on their writing so that they learn how to be a better writer. That's, that's formative feedback. Um, but the problem is, is that a lot of times when people say, when, when they come to one of us, you know, and 
you know, this guy who came for screen, uh, you know, said, Hey, could you read my screenplay? Probably what he really wanted was either introductions to other people so he could sell his screenplay, um, praise or, um, you know, maybe a job working for this guy. He did not want formative feedback, um, obviously because he responded so badly to it. And, uh, and this happens probably with you and, and probably with me, um, although probably less with me because, again, I can only do so much for people. But sometimes people are looking for a connection in the publishing world. Um, but that's sort of implied. It's like, hey, I have an unpublished manuscript. Would you like to read it? And my answer is, is, is just, you know, I would like to read it, but I do not have enough hours in the day and I am so sorry. Like I have a couple of different replies. I'll give people like, if I can, if I can smell that they just want me to tweet about their thing, which uh, only in like 5% of the time I get, I can read their message and I'm like, I'm like, I can tell this person, they don't give a fuck about what I think. They don't want to listen to me. They don't even really want to meet with me. They, all they want is to link me to their shit and have me put it on my social media. And I feel so gross and used when people do that right it's like because they come in with the pretense of like oh hey big fan i'd love to know what you think of my you know some boring thing that i don't care about at all that has nothing to do with my work or what i do uh and uh you know i'm hoping uh, i can show it to you and and see if we could you know work together to promote it or something and like i can smell you know i can i know exactly where that's going to go and i usually just say sorry i i i have to pass on this or there's a great, uh, I forgot, there's like someone famously wrote, uh, I'm, uh, sadly, I must decline for secret reasons, which, <laughs> which is a perfect, I've actually sent that email when I'm, when I'm feeling really defensive about something and it works. It's amazing how well people, how much people respect it. Cause like, they don't know what that means. They assume it's like legitimate, right? Yeah. It gives them a more legitimate excuse than you could possibly give. Now, now here's the other thing that you, you kind of touched on where I think there is a bit of a mythology that surrounds like the brutal, the brutal feedback as somehow miraculous. Um, and I'm pretty sure there was a story about, was it Straczynski contacted, um, uh, who was it? It's one of the, Oh, Harlan Ellison, like way back in the day. And Straczynski did Babylon five and, and he's done a bunch of, comic since then but he reached out to Kubrick and he's like you know I'm trying to write this stuff and I'm trying to break in and I just can't break in you know what you know how how can I do it what's what's the secret and you know reportingly and I don't know if this it, it kind of feels apocryphal telling it now uh but apparently uh Harlan Ellison wrote back and said quit writing shit <laughs> <laughs> And now here's, here's the thing. There is a certain sort of person at a certain sort of time in their life when you're ready for it, that can be life changing. Um, however, I think the sort of person that feedback is useful for is it's, it's not everyone. And also the time that that comes to you in your life that is not useful at any point in your life, or, or rather, I should say, it's not useful at every point in your creative development. Um, you know, when you right now doing what you do, working with cards, if you were to show a card to somebody and say, you know, I'm, I'm really not sure about this one. What do you think? 
them looking at you and saying, maybe you should stop being like a complete fucking gimp stick and write something good. That's not formative for you at this point. And I do think it's probably pretty likely that if you are really self-involved, if you're really sure of your own awesomeness, if you're really sure that you shit gold and it should be published and the problem is everyone else not understanding your art, then you probably need to realize that no, it is not, <laughs> not everyone else not getting you. It is maybe you not being worth being gotten. Um, that's, that was a nightmare of a fucking sentence. I would hate to see that diagrammed. Um, <laughs> that was a real Donald Trump sentence. Oh, oh no, them's fighting words, Max. Um, but, you know, I, so I think that type of feedback can be amazingly useful, uh, but only rarely, much more rarely than a lot of people think that it's useful. Um, and what I know as a teacher and as somebody who was a tutor and trained tutors, as somebody who really, I mean, I sucked at academia, but I was good at pedagogy. I'm a good teacher. And, uh, you know, the truth is almost all the time, what people need to hear is what they are good at. You know, you need to look at their writing, look at their game, look at whatever and say, this thing here is good. This part you have done is good. This initiative system is groundbreaking. When I first saw Thornwatch, mm -hmm. um, I sat down and it was with you. We were at PAX together right. and we played it and I'm like, and we, I saw the initiative system and I'm like, I have never seen something like this before. It is so fucking clever and elegant and intuitive. Um, and I go, whoever comes up with this, I hope that somebody made them a cake. Um, now there were other parts of the game that were not that great, but if all I done is like sat down with whoever made it and said, here's the eight things that you fucked up. It's everything you add, you know, like everyone can hear one bad thing usually, you know, or three bad things or five, but everyone has a like breaking strain where if you say enough bad things, they're just going to like want to throw away their entire project. Well, and, and so and, and, and at a certain point, you know, where there's another thing that happens where the, the switch flips where it's like, well, actually, none of this criticism is legitimate because this person doesn't like me. The, right. Right, the, the professor has it out for me. Nothing. The professor's criticism of my work is not legitimate because the professor does not like me. Well, yeah. So you need to get. So that's the that's the needle of like I I hit that switch every time I give people criticism. They're like, well, Max doesn't like me, or or it's it's cruel, or Max hates it. And then nothing I whether even it's a legitimate point or not, nothing I hear matters after that. Nothing I yeah. say matters, right? Well, here's here, and this is a, a a very personal story for me. When I was working on what would eventually become the name of the wind, you know, it was a huge labor of love, and I was writing and writing. And I had gotten maybe like 60 single space pages typed. Um, and this would be back in 94, right? Like legitimately forever ago. And um, I gave it to a friend who I trusted, you know, and who was also kind of a, a, an aspiring writer and who was a gamer and who was a fantasy geek and, you know, somebody whose opinion I respected. And I gave it to him and then later he's like, okay, I read it. You want to talk about it? We got together at like the local 
you know, Perkins equivalent late at night. We sat down and he said, and, and I remember it exactly, like photographically, he said, and I'm nervous as shit, right? Because I've been really pouring my heart into this and I think it's good. Otherwise I wouldn't show, have showed it to somebody, but I'm still nervous. That's why I want feedback. And I sit down with him and he says, well, it's good. And immediately my whole body relaxes. And he says, there's some problems, but he goes, it's good. He goes, and then he immediately jumps in. And he says, he says, you spell this person's name like four fucking different ways, <laughs> you know? And he goes in and like this, 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 but it, it, it hit on what, exactly what you mentioned where he said, it's good. And so immediately I got to relax. And at the same time, you know, I knew that we were on the same side, that he liked it and that he wanted to help me make it better. And then he talked about some things that he had problems with. Um, and because of that, I was reassured that what I was doing was good. And I moved forward and tried to make it better and better. Now, there is an alternate timeline where we sat down and he said, he said, I did not know what was going on with this character. He says, you got this person here. I thought they were twins for a while because you changed his name in part of the manuscript and not the other. And so it was two like identical characters with different names. And that just totally threw me off. And so the plot didn't make sense. And this person is a real dick. And every time they're on the page, I really don't want to be a part of that at all. Um, also, it doesn't seem like the story goes anywhere. doesn't feel like there's a lot of plot. I mean, and all of those things were actually true of that, plus more. Um, because if I were to look at that now, if you were to look at that now, I should dig up that proto version of Name of the Wind. It was not particularly good. Um, by, by any publishable metric, it was not. However, what I needed at that point in my artistic development was to know that I shouldn't quit and that I could make it better. And if that friend had not given me that piece of advice at that moment, uh, who knows? I mean, I, I very could have easily could have packed it in. Hmm. Um, and this is honestly, it's the agony of the teacher, like being an English teacher, like freshman English is excruciating because it's a ton of work. You know, assigning and reading and giving formative feedback on these papers is an excruciatory process. Also, the students don't feel like they have to be in there, that they shouldn't be in there, and they're irritated. And so they're resistant quite frequently. But that is honestly, it's a lot more clear cut because it's my job to make sure that they leave there being able to like write in a semi-responsible way to make their ideas understood, to be clear, to be able to organize things, to be able to write a research paper for college. That's pretty clean. But in a writing class, you know, here's the maddening thing. If I'm a professor in a writing class, how can I tell the difference between the student who, I mean, honestly, and I bet statistically, the one who needs the short, sharp shock, you know, who needs to say, listen, your stuff is shit and you will not progress as a, as an artist until you realize that you are 
you are crap right now. Who And those people are probably, you know, middle-class white dudes, you know, who is like are really sure that they are the best at everything. And because that's kind of what the culture teaches them. And they, maybe they need that at this point in their lives to like get jostled out of their own self-indulgence. But how do you tell the difference between that student and the person who really just needs to know that they are doing okay so that they don't pack it in and quit forever? When is your job to encourage and when is it to prune and when is it to castigate? Related to that, when do you just walk away because you know that you're, that the relationship is not teacher to student? Because right. that's, that's, tr- that's the like – so I have trouble with all of these distinctions. Well, and, and, and that's something that a teacher has that we don't because if somebody signs up for my class, I know that they are there to learn. Right. Whereas if somebody sends you an email – and they say, boy, I'd really love your feedback. And then two hours in, you're like, oh, fuck. They, what they really want is an investor. Yes. Let me, give you, let me give you a story. Let me tell you a story that now this is one of the worst meetings. It stands out in my memory. So I, I should say, like, I do, for all my complaining and bitching about this, I do almost every, <laughs> almost everyone who emails me, eventually I meet with them. Like, I just. Oh, don't I, say that, Max. I do. I that. do. I do. I mean, yeah. I mean, this is one of the okay. reasons I have an assistant is I just do, I do 10 of these a week. I meet with, and I'm, I don't, I can't say no. Like I feel, I mean, I, I feel like I, I somehow, I, I, I don't feel this way. I do owe it. I do owe it. Okay. I, I we, was the guy. We'll talk about, we'll I, talk about that next. But I was the guy who emailed people who were, I mean, not to, not to self-aggrandize or anything but I was the guy who when I was younger I emailed people who were like I, I don't know how to say it they were like out of my league I emailed people who were my heroes the best the people who I looked up to and I was the best and I was I was such a piece of shit I didn't think about them I was thinking about me and I was like I was like hey I'm awesome and I'm doing this cool thing and I like your stuff would you meet with me and the, and some of them said yes and they gave me great advice and I owe so much to them and like if someone feel and I think it's ridiculous that people look at something I made and feel a similar way, but I feel like I have to do it. Like if someone says, Hey, I like your work and I'd love to meet with you and get your advice on my Kickstarter or talk to you about my project or whatever. Anyway, I feel like I have to do it. I have to, but one of the, I'll tell you a story about the, one of the worst of these meetings that I ever had. And it stands out in my memory just because of its, its awfulness. So this is an outlier in terms of how bad it is, but this is what happens sometimes. So these guys emailed me and they're like, hey, we like live in the suburbs, like kind of out where you grew up and we're huge Cards Against Humanity fans and the success of your game, you know, we've, we've watched it for many years and it's inspired us to make a game and we, we have this prototype and we're really excited about it and we've tested it and all our friends love it and, and we can't wait to show it to you and figure out what, what we should do. And I was like, I was like, that is so nice of you. I was like, absolutely come over to the office. We'll set up a meeting. I would love to see what you're working on. I'll help however I can, you know, so on and so forth. So these two guys come in and they're, I would sort of describe them as like dads, right? They're sort of like older, like suburban dads and uh, two white guys, which will become important to the story in a minute. And uh, so we sit down in the conference room. There's some pleasantries. We get coffee. We sit down. We talk for a little bit. And I'm like, all right, tell me about this game you're working on. And the guy, one of the guys reaches into his um, shoulder bag and he draws, he withdraws from the bag a deck, a like printed, like mounted cards of like his pitch, right? Of like. The, biz- the game business that they're starting and pulls it out of the bag and I was already in the back of my mind I'm like I'm like oh, buckle up here we go like I didn't know what I was in for I thought they were gonna like bring a game and show me this game but they're showing me like 
a business, like a PowerPoint deck that's like been printed out, right? And wow. the one guy holds up the cards, and the other guy's the talk, you know, he, the other guy's like the fast talker, and they're going on about their business and this and that. And eventually they get to this game they're working on, and here's the game pitch. It's called The Game of Stereotypes. And basically they have these art, these like cartoons that the one guy drew, and there's no way for me to charitably describe these cartoons other than they are racial caricatures. So it's like oh. a Nazi caricature of a Jew, and it's like here's the Jew, and it's like a Jim Crow era, you know, like a, a, a black face kind of like mascot character and like here's the black person and then every and I can't remember what the game was but it was something akin to everybody writes down like a stereotype about these pictures and then you pick the the one that everyone wrote or I don't know it was some sort of cards against humanity inspired comedy game and these guys were like we were so inspired by what you've done with cards and your game is just so rude and so like so like cool and edgy and that we want to make our own like rude edgy thing where you're just insulting everybody and you're going after all these every group right and i was just taken i was just like stunned i was like i i was like i you know because i often I, I i try this is going to sound anyone who works with me or who's ever done any creative thing with me if they're if they ever listen to this they're going to laugh their asses off when i say this but i try i try so hard with i try so so hard to give people positive actionable feedback and not be an asshole to them when I give feedback I know I'm not good at it but I'm telling you I'm tr- I try so hard and I always and Trin has taught me Trin is like uh, Trin is good at people in the same way that I'm good at computers like Trin is, <laughs> Trin is so good at people she just intuitively gets it and Trin has taught me so much about this. So, like, I learned about the compliment sandwich. Do you know about this? Yep. So that's one of the basic, basic building blocks. And actually, here, let's share it with the with the audience real quick. Well, you you go ahead and say it. Oh well, uh, honestly, it's what that friend did in my in my meeting. You know, where he said the first thing he said is a good thing. He says this is good. Now, it would have been better if he if he'd been specific. He said, you know, like I like this care. He goes, it's a good story. I like this character. Uh, sometimes his actions are a little confusing, but generally speaking, you know, I feel like, um, you know, he's compelling and I want to know more about his life. That is a compliment sandwich. Cause I start with something good and then I say something critical and then I say something good again. And it, it makes, you know, it's, it's, it's a spoonful of sugar that helps you sort of internalize, you know, a criticism that's being said. Right, and and, it, and it's implicit. I think the other, it's, yeah, so it, it makes you understand that the person giving you the feedback is on your side, so you're re- yep. you're more willing to take the, the criticism. And, you know, the other thing is um, it's, uh, 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 it's, it's sort of implicit in the compliment sandwich that it's worth your effort to continue working on this thing, right? Because yes, there's yes. good things in it. You know, it's that kind of encouraging feedback that you were talking about. Anyway... I try so hard to do. I know I'm. Sh- I know I'm bad at it. I know that people are going to listen to this and laugh at this because of how bad I am at it. But I really am trying. And I was in this meeting with these two morons who made this game, and <laughs> I really, for the life of me, I could not think of one thing good to say about the game. I was like, you guys. I was like, I was just like, you guys should not make this game. Possibly, you should not make any game. Uh, I was like, you have, I, I was like, I assure you, you have not played. T- I was like, I don't know how you think you've play tested this, but I assure you, you have not play tested this with any sort of diverse group of people. I was like, furthermore, I was like, you fundamentally do not understand anything about cards against humanity or its success or why people like it or how it makes people feel. If this is what you think people take away from it. 
And I was like, I really don't understand. I really think that there is no audience for your racist caricature game. And people would be, almost anyone I know and any consumer of Cards Against Humanity would be embarrassed to have this in their house. Like, I would not, I would be embarrassed. <laughs> I was like, if, if someone came over to my house and your game of racial stereotypes was on my bookshelf with my games, I would be embarrassed. I would, if I owned this game, it would be a secret shame that I put, I hid away like pornography. Um, you know, like, it's just a bad, it was everything about it is a bad idea. And they left and I, they were, deje- I'm sure they were dejected and I, you know, hope, Hopefully they actually don't actually make that game. But uh, I don't know. It's just like I have that. It's like I would say like over 50% of the time, that's about the level of meeting that I have of like I come away with it. And I'm like, wow, you really, sh-, um, you know, it's like basically a, like a, hey, don't quit your day job situation. You know, a lot of it is like people are like, oh, uh, I'm, I'm um, well, I don't really make games, but I'm more of an idea guy. And I have a, I have a, an idea for a game. And, you know, that's nothing. That's and- yeah, that's actually that I I have I, I got that a lot back in the day when I was like everybody knew that I was working on a book or even when like when I was going to be published but wasn't published yet, then people would be like, hey, you know, I have a great story. How about, you know, I tell you my idea and you write it and then we split it 50 50, um, you know, which seems fairly equitable to them and they don't realize that. And, and this is what I what I say when I talk about writing, you know, in, on panels or, you know, stuff like that is I say, um, I say, I say the worst story ever written is better than the story that you have in your head. Right. Because the story that has been written down is a story. And the thing that you have in your head is just an idea. You know, if you want to, if, if you're dealing with something quantifiable, it's sort of like the worst, you know, take it to the Olympics, right? It's like, you know, me, me, Pat Rothfuss getting up on the pommel horse. Imagine this, right? And just like flailing around in the most embarrassing way possible and then falling off and I, I hurt myself and I cry. That is a better pommel horse routine than you thinking about being on the pommel horse, right? Um, because one is a routine and the other is not. Um and I would even argue that my bad pommel horse routine is better than an Olympian merely thinking about their pommel horse routine. Hmm. That's that's the key, right? Is something that you do is always, you know, it is a thing, whereas something you think of is not. Well, yeah, it's not. It's not. I, I would. I would. I agree with this, but only with the caveat of it's not that it's better it's that it's anything right it's that at least it has some even if it's bad at least it has some qualities that can be improved as long as it's in your head it has no qualities yeah it it has the primary necessary uh quality required for something that will be experienced by other people and that is its existence existence is a necessary quality for a piece of writing uh, because until it's written down, it's not writing. Um, and similarly, you know, me go- going to you and saying, you know, I have an idea for a game. But, and it's a little bit different with a game because a game's mechanic is conceptual. Whereas um, a piece of writing, the writing cannot be conceptual. Words on a page need to exist in, in a different way. 
but I need to take a step back here because, you know, when I said that this issue that we're talking about is actually like four things all tangled up. And one of those is people asking for one thing, but what they really want is another, you know, sometimes they just want a belly rub. Sometimes they, you know, they want money. Sometimes they want just publicity. Sometimes they want you to do everything, you know? Um, and sometimes maybe rarely they want actual formative feedback. Um, but the other issue that, man, I've got to, I got to, I got to do this, Max. It's simply not scalable. What you're doing is, is good. And it's, it's, it's an act of love and it stems from the fact that you do want to help people. And it also stems from the self-awareness that if you had not received help from people in your life, you wouldn't be where you are today. But I will say the solution is not to help everyone that asks. You have to start instituting some filters. Um, Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you another, um, let me complicate this with one more with one more big idea, which is okay. I've, I often have the thought. You know how you and I have talked about how we think we're we're both prone to what you've called grandiosity, which is like this feeling of like everything is just this simple problem that I could solve if I just yeah built just do the thing myself. So I in my in a, in various like times in a peak of uh, what I think is is just like total grandiosity when I've been overwhelmed with all these like right now I'm just overwhelmed with the people who want to meet with me. And I don't know how I'm going to do it because it's been, I have two months of people who are just like, Hey, can we meet? Can we do this? Can we do this? Can we do this? And I want, I, I don't, I want to help all, I want to meet with all these people. And it's now it's just built up. The backlog is to a point where I cannot possibly do it. And so, you know, I'm prone to this kind of thinking of like, well, I should just, I was like, if I just make this a product of like, if I just like write down you know, the, if I make a template of like the advice that I give these people, like I could like make a book or I could write a blog post or write some product of like, well, then I can just, I could say, well, instead of meeting, I wrote down the magic, all of the key wisdom right here. (laughs) And you can just read this link and then you'll know all of the information. And I've tried to do this a few times over the years where I try to sort of standardize or write something down. And the problem is I realize as soon as I start to do it, that it's impossible because all of the advice I have to give these people is completely contextual. And, yep. and unfortunately, the, the, the key piece of advice that I always tell, the only thing I, can, I tell people every single time I meet with them that's repeatable, that's reliable, that I always tell people, the only consi- one consistent answer that I always tell people is you must make decisions conditionally. Do not do what I did. Don't do what cards did. You must conditionally assess your own capabilities your own resources your own historical context your own uh your your own team and make a decision conditionally based on all of those things what cards did that was smart was not any one thing that we did it was that we made those decisions conditionally as part of a larger strategy we like assessed our capabilities and our strengths and we conditionally made decisions based on what we could do and you can't be successful by doing what we did you can only be successful by thinking conditionally so the whole in some ways the whole premise of coming to me for advice to see what i did or what cards did is it's fundamentally wrong because it's not you're you're missing out i get so worked up when i'm talking about this but it's like i can't as like you cannot get to where we are by by following what we did because the point is not that we did something that's followable. The only followable thing is that we didn't follow the rules. Yeah. It's the same with me where, you know, people find out that I spent 14 years working on name of the wind before it was published. And they're like, (laughs) and they're like, 
they're like, oh, good. That means, you know, I've only been working on mine for seven years. Obviously, I'm on the right track. And I'm like, whoa, no, no, actually, no, you, you've, you've learned the wrong lesson. You know, it's like, for one, I'm not a role model. Like, in every conceivable way, I am not a role model. Um, you know, but see, and you know what it is? It's, it's misidentifying props as has themes or something like that where people go, Oh, okay. So the secret is to work 14 years. And I'm like, no, no. If you think that is the secret, then maybe you are just bad at thinking. This is the same thing with cards. They're like, well, we have to make, they're like, if our game is going to be successful, we have to make it look exactly like cards against humanity. It's got to be like black and white and Helvetica. And it's like, no, like, don't you see, like, it's not that it's black and white and Helvetica. It's that we, it's that we made that choice to solve the, pro- it's that we, we looked at the problem and we solved it contextually. It's that we, th- we were critical and we said, it's that we said when we were presented with the problem of how do we make our game look, we rejected the notion that it should look like other games. We were like, no, fuck every other game. We're going to, we have to figure out for us how it looks. You can't get you can't make a game that's popular by making it look like our game. You have to decide you have to figure out for yourself what your game should look like. Well, and you should figure out what your game should look like depending on uh what your game wants to do and what the marketplace is like. And right now, the marketplace is full of cards against humanity. Right. You know, and so if you try to make it look like that, it's not going to work. Similarly, well, I mean, hell, let's I want to if I don't mention Hamilton once in the podcast, then uh, I give myself a demerit. You know, Hamilton, right now, people, there's, I guarantee there's committee rooms full of people desperately trying to, like, mine American history for, like, lost treasure. They're like, they're, the key is, obviously, that we have underestimated the, the, the appeal of American history, you know? And it's like, actually, no. No, that has virtually nothing to do with the success of Hamilton. It, there's a bit, but the bit that is interesting is that he did this thing that nobody had done before, um, and he did it in a way that nobody had done before, and using style nobody had used before, um, and then made a bunch of other choices to like serve his core purpose based on all of these things. It's, I'm trying to think of a, of a better example, you know, okay. Here's the thing. People want the answer to be like Lego instructions. (laughs) Yes. Yes. That's what they want. They want my, not my, not, well, we were joking about this last week, but they want the nine power tips of writing a successful novel. Yep. And, uh, you know, and that's what we want, and we feel like that should be the case. But what will happen, and this this happens when I do Q and A's um, about stuff about writing, is somebody you know there'll be questions, and sometimes the questions are like, you know, do you have any advice to how to make a character who is kind of an asshole still empathetic to the reader? You know. And that, that, that can be a great question. And then everyone on the panel kind of gives some advice. Um, and that works because what we're doing is helping people gather ammunition so that they can make their own contextually appropriate 
decisions. However, that's there's the opposite of a Trump sentence uh, for you, America. Um, the but then somebody stands up and they go, okay, here's the thing. I'm writing a book, and the premise is that there's dwarves and they're all wizards and they ride dragons and uh, alchemy is taking over the world and corporate America is leading to the apocalypse and it needs to be saved by uh, uh, the, the lone orphan dragon who is the one that was named by the prophecy. What color would his eyes be in this uh, example? Uh, gray. Gray, except they also change color. To purple. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> and so... Now here's the thing, and I, I kind of I kind of went off on a little spoken word poem about the ridiculous of fantasy tropes there, but um, really, what they're saying is, this is what I'm doing. Is this okay? And the only answer to that is, it depends. The entire success of your premise depends on execution, because. You know, here's the thing, young orphan boy, school of magic, you know, um, if you execute it one way, you get Harry Potter, you execute it another way, you get name of the wind, you execute, execute it a third way, you get Raymond Feist's magician. Those are all young orphan boy learns magic, you know? And so the premise and, you know, execute it a thousand different ways and you get really, really awful novels um, or stories or fairy tales. The key is always, always in the execution, the premise. And this is the thing that's super hard to, to stomach is that the premise is almost not important. Or maybe it's more fair to say that the premise is really in no way as important as the execution. Um, uh, and that's, that's just the truth. I mean, my favorite book ever, you know, the last unicorn, if you know, and this is why like summarizing books is, is like, if, uh, if there's the hell, when I go there, that will be my job is summarizing books because you say, Oh really? It's, it's good. Why they, they go, what's it about? And I go, well, there's a unicorn and she is worried she's the last unicorn, so she goes to look for unicorns. And they're like, that sounds like shit. <laughs> and, I'm like, and I'm like, well, it does, except it's the best book I've ever read. Um, oh, and it happened with Fun Home, right? Um, I told my dad that I was going out to New York and to, to catch a play. And he's like, oh, what's it about? And I go, I go oh, it's called Fun Home, and it's about a family – and they, a girl, and she grows up in a funeral home. And he's like, oh. And I said, well, it's based on a comic. <laughs> he goes, oh. <laughs> I'm like, and I realized at that point, there's no way I can describe what this is about to him and have him understand how good it is. Well, we, we have a running, there's a running joke in the, in the cards against community writers room where whenever some, so, so sometimes the group is into a card or laughing at a card and one person just, they cannot get on board. They don't like it. And there's always some strategy. You can always rationalize not liking something, not liking a joke or a comedy thing that's not to your taste. You can always rationalize it intellectually for some reason or another, right? There's always something where you can come from it at some angle and, and intellectualize your 
taste level dislike of a joke. Just it's not to your taste, right? So we have this running joke in the writer's room where whenever we're talking about a card, so like one of my favorite cards from the, that we wrote re- recently is the sweet forbidden meat of the monkey. And if someone, <laughs> it's, a, it's just, a, just a weird card with a weird perspective, right? And there's like a lot going on there. But if someone doesn't like that card, they'll always, they can always pick at it and they'll go like, well, at its core, this is just a joke about meat. Which is hilarious because you can do that. You could say that about anything. Well, at its core, it's just a joke about blank. We also have like, right. like let's see, like uh, uh, dropping dead in a Sbarro's bathroom and not being found for 72 hours. That's another That's another <laughs> just like grim scenario that I really like. And, so, and if someone doesn't like that, they can always go, well, at its heart, this is really a joke about dying. Like, is dying funny? You know, it's like you can always reduce it. Yeah. And, and that's yes. And that's exactly it. Anything reduced is loses its its substance anything reduced is soulless um and neil gaiman wrote you know he he in in fragile things one of his collections uh which if you haven't read actually if you haven't read it i recommend you don't read it and instead buy the audiobook read by neil gaiman because neil gaiman reading his own work like getting to listen to that is like having like Lord Krishna give you a foot rub hmm. while eating a chocolate sundae and having sex. Um, so that's there. Hey, Neil, if you're listening to this, there's the new blurb for your book. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. I hope nobody lets him know that I just said that. Um, but uh, he, in this story that he tells, uh, you know, and I'm actually going to, because this is the thing, if I paraphrase his quotation, it won't work because why? Because the execution is everything. And in this case, the execution is in the exact, uh, in the exact verbiage, uh, game and, uh, story map. Um, one describes a tale best by telling the tale, you see. The way one describes a story to oneself or to the world is by telling the story. It is a balancing act and it is a dream. The more accurate the map, the more it resembles the territory. The most accurate map possible would be the territory and thus would be perfectly accurate and perfectly useless. The tale is the map that is the territory. And you must remember this. And I'm like, that is the key to stories. And it's the key to understanding why anything that you read on the back of a book is at best awful Hmm. and at worst destructive. It is the map that misrepresents the world so much that you become lost or hopeless. There's a there's an idea that you might like that's that's kind of similar along these lines that comes from the world of like tech and startups that that I really like. So this is um, and I uh, a little uh, short piece by this guy uh, Derek Sievers, who really like his writing, 
And uh, he, he has this famous blog post, um, I think it's from like 2004, 2005, called uh, Ideas Are Just a Multiplier of Execution. So he says, it's, uh, it's so funny to me when I hear people being so protective of their ideas, people who want me to sign an NDA to tell me the simplest idea. To me, ideas are worth nothing unless executed. They're just a multiplier. Execution is worth millions. So, and then he has this little chart in here where he goes, like an awful idea is a minus one, a weak idea is a one, a good idea is a 10, all the way up to a brilliant idea is a 20. So no execution is worth $1. Weak execution is $1,000. Good execution is $100,000, all the way up to a brilliant execution is $10 million. <laughs> right? Now he says, to make a business, you just need to multiply the two. The most brilliant idea with no execution is worth $20. <laughs> the most brilliant idea takes great execution to be worth about $20 million. That's why I don't want to hear people as ideas. I'm not interested until I see their execution. That's, that's a very, very good way of, of putting this. Um, you know, and honestly, that's, that's, that's part of my fear of, uh, the engagement in a lot of this Hollywood stuff. Um, you know, I, I am afraid of engaging in this Hollywood stuff because I know that they want to do the right stuff. I know they want to make something good. They have the idea. The idea is my book, but the execution is everything. And how can I be reassured as to the execution before signing papers? I can't, you know, um, the, uh, so let, let me, I got to I got to step backward again because I feel you're in a moment that you, you might be experiencing uh, a productive catastrophe uh, um, in like what you've just mentioned. You've got all these people who want to meet up with you and talk with you, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to draw an analogy to a situation I'm guessing you already have um, that you've figured out how to overcome. And that is uh, you must get a lot of convention requests, right? Uh, no, I don't get a ton of convention requests and I'll tell you why and it's because I've set Such clear boundaries for myself on conventions and I have no remorse uh, I have absolutely no remorse for it. So If a convention is not willing to pay for my travel to come out and pay me to be there and pay me fairly for my time I don't want to be I don't care. I don't want to be at every convention. I don't care There's like five conventions. I like going to every year and I pay to go I pay my own way to go there and you know I exhibit or I do something there But if a convention's not willing to pay a lot of money to have me there I don't I just I have no problem to care of business. I don't feel bad telling them that but it's it's different than if it's a person who wants my help well and and it is and it isn't it is in that you experience empathy towards humans that you don't experience towards businesses, which, by the way, good job, congratulations. I am glad of that. However, um, the practical effects in your life are actually virtually identical, where these are entities which are coming forward in an attempt to consume a piece of the only truly finite resource available to you, which is your time. So here's my, here's my proposal, right? Uh, because what I, I get a lot of convention requests too, and maybe more than you, because, you know, there's a lot of comic cons and game cons and writing cons. I know there's probably way more writing cons than anything because we, you know, sci-fi and fantasy started 
the whole convention scene. Well, and well, so I'll tell you. I mean, honestly, I'll tell you what it is. It's that your work is you are the auteur creator of your work. So people who like Name of the Winds, they want Pat Rothfuss, right? People who like cards don't give a shit about me. They want they want news to buy new things for the game. They want they you know it's like they care about the brand I've created, but no one knows who I am really outside of our social circle. And I, I'm happy. I like. It. I mean, I wouldn't. I don't know that I'd change. I don't know that I'd have that another way because I don't get the same amount of bl- of blame when things <laughs> things go wrong or anger. Um, but I think. But I do think that's a it's a curse and a blessing of being an author. Is like, well, you're the guy. That is that is true, and I think you 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 do make a good point there. But what I ended up having to do is, um, you know, I. And and uh, I had a meeting with somebody or actually uh, somebody was sitting in on one of our meetings and one of my assistants said, OK, there's a new con. It's in Chicago and Jim Butcher's going to be there and it's a new con and they would really love you to come out. And I go and I thought, oh, I would like to see Jim. You know, I don't get to see Jim Butcher very often. It's like eh, it's just in Chicago. That's a quick plane trip. Um, I'm like. You know, and I remember thinking, well, maybe I could see Max if I swung down in that neck of the woods. And then I was kind of agonizing. And the person who wasn't part of my team, he said, <clears throat> he said, so just out of curiosity, what does this con have to offer you? As opposed to, say, staying at home and doing nothing except catching up on your sleep and spending time with your family. And put in that perspective, I was like, oh, shit. Um, You know, it's like this con is relatively new. It's not going to raise my profile. I might get to see you. I might get to see Butcher. But really what I'm going to be doing is paying to go down and give them a bunch of my time and energy so that they can have a successful con. And then I will come back exhausted and having not seen my family for, for three or four days. Now, what you're getting out of um, these interactions with these people who approach you is you're genuinely trying to kind of like pay back into the community. You're trying to help fellow human beings. Also, you're probably, you know, hoping that you can help bring more good things into the world. And all of that is great. Well, and specifically in my community and in Chicago, right? Like I, I'm very invested personally in like the success of like the creative scene in my neighborhood. And I want, I want people to succeed. Yep. So, but here's my proposal. I'm not saying don't absolutely not because that would make you miserable and it's just not a good solution. Um, but here's what I do for conventions at this point, because I get asked a lot and, and here's the other thing. I do actually enjoy going to conventions. I enjoy meeting fans. I enjoy talking about writing and being on panels, but realistically, I cannot do it as much as I would like. And and here's the issue. Here's the word. And you know it, right? Scalability. You know, the behavior that you engaged in before where you could meet up with people who contacted you every once in a while, it does not scale. And so what you need to do is something similar to what I do with conventions. Now, people contact me. They don't contact me directly. It gets filtered immediately to one of the assistants and the assistants uh, bounce them a very polite, very friendly, very engaging, very like, thank you so much for reaching out. Here's what we need to know before 
we talk about Pat coming to your convention. It's like, can you pay his way? Can he bring an assistant so that he doesn't end up just a shambling wreck by the end of the con? You know, so will you pay a way for his assistant to come with you or with, with him? Uh, will you pay to bring his family out? Because, you know, it's easier for me to go to a con if at night I get to go home and play with my kids and, and sleep in the same bed as my little boy. Um, and they also say, do you have uh, a charity auction? Would you be willing to let that charity auction benefit world builders? Um, how many attendees are at this con? And it's pretty much, they, they, they break it down. Now, all of that is convention specific, but here's my proposal, right? And this is said to you as somebody who is kind of the same as you in that we want to help people and we want to be good people. And we're kind of, we're kind of soft touches here, right? But maybe you could implement a little bit of a questionnaire step in this engagement process that somebody, you know, they could answer it. And some of the questions could be like, what are you really looking for in this meeting? You know, help with promotion, help with production, help with design, you know, formative feedback in terms of our concept. And, you know, and if all the only box they check is like, you know, we, you know, I, you know, we really just kind of were hoping he would tweet about it. Then, you know, um, and, you know, let's say all this process does is some people, when they hear, when they get this questionnaire back, maybe they don't respond to it. And that cuts out 20% of your, of your things. That's a success. Right. You know, or honestly, and, but here's the other thing, when you do meet up with them, you'll probably be able to target the conversation a lot more effectively because if you spend, you know, your, your theoretical 20 minute coffee talk talking about the mechanics of the game where what they really want to know is like, what are your opinions on the design of the box? You know, it might make for like more efficient meetings for the people you do decide to get together with. Um, because believe me, I do know like those individual meetings are, they, they will devour your entire life. Um, um, I, I so you, feel, so you're I, imagining, so I would need to do some sort of, I mean, I think it needs to have some sort of, here's how I imagine this. Like it, it's some sort of like, it needs to have like a little piece of writing and it needs to say, uh, listen, here's the situation. Like I get, you know, 10 of these requests of people who want to talk to me every day. And it's, I need, and if I met with everybody, I would never have time to make anything or do anything of my own again. So I need to narrow down what these meetings are about. So please answer these questions and that will help me decide if I can help you by meeting. Yep. And, you know, and if, if nothing else, that is a super, not just useful, I think it's a vital piece of communication because, you know, like my interaction with my fan mail, you know, for years, I read every piece of fan mail that came in. Well, probably for two years, I read and replied to every piece of fan mail. Um, and I got a lot. It was before I stopped replying to every piece. I bet you it was more than 2,000, um, 3,000 maybe, 4,000. 
And then I'm like, okay. And I'm like, well, some of these don't really require direct response. I let it slide. And then I'd, be, I'd, I'd respond to maybe one in three, maybe one in five, maybe one in 10. But even one in 10, at my last count, and this was three years ago, I'd received like 20,000 pieces of fan mail. Um, and the thing that I used to be do, used to do that brought me joy and brought other people joy, it simply couldn't scale anymore where it got to the point where if I, if I merely read all the fan mail and every piece of fan mail only took me 30 seconds to read, it would take me 15 hours a week. Um, and like that 15 hours is, is an immense chunk of time. And also that's not me replying. That was just me reading. And so now when people send in a piece of fan mail, they automatically get a response that says, Hey, thank you so much. I do care. It's lovely that you've done this. Um, but please be aware that I can't read and respond to all of these the way that I used to. Um, but we do go through the fan mail and, you know, I, I effectively, I get digests now of my fan mail, which, and it's, I, I'm actually filled with, you're like, a, you're like a congressman. This is how congressmen get their mail is it gets like, they get like a tally of like, here's all the issues that people wrote in about. God, is that true? Is that how it works? Yeah. The, the congressman like every week gets like a rundown of all the communications that his office got and, uh. Uh, basically different kinds of communication are weighted differently. So at different offices have, have different ways of doing this, but like uh, an example system would be um, an email is worth one point. A phone call is worth 10 points. A handwritten letter is worth a hundred points. Right. And that's why, that's why it really ma- Like if you write a handwritten letter to your congressperson, it's worth like that will make a, an impact. Or if you call and speak with someone on the phone, it, has such an, a bigger impact than email. I mean, emailing your congressperson basically does nothing. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it, I, every time one of those online petition things comes up, I think, you know, I mean, and sometimes if it's like, wow, 50 million people, but at the same time, anyone who kind of knows the shape of the world is thinking, oh, wow, a hundred thousand people cared enough to click a button. And that does not indicate a great deal of care. However, writing in a piece of, of, of mail does. And so, you know, and I, I will admit, like, as soon as I said this out loud, I was immediately overcome with, with guilt again, guilt that I dealt with way back in the day when I instituted this process. And, but what I was forced to come to grips with is this wasn't a little thing that I could kind of do anymore. It was fun for me and fun for the people that emailed in. And effectively, like, you know, and, and you could look at it and go, oh, you know, this meeting's 20 minutes, except you've realized it really isn't 20 minutes. And even if you streamline that 20 minute process and it's only really 40 minutes, the fact remains that, you know, well, for me, it's like, well, let's say I read and respond to a piece of fan mail, several pieces, of, and it only takes five minutes. It makes a big deal to that person. But then I think, what else is going on in my life? Um, I think that my, my little boys would love that five minutes. You know, last night I hung out with them for an hour and a half. You know? Um, and so adding five minutes to that is a huge deal. Especially, like, what if there are five emails that I wanted? That's a half an hour. 
Um, that's a ton of time I could spend with my kid compared to what I'm currently spending with my kids. Um, so yeah, for me, the know, pro- I- for me, the problem is whenever I make that decision, whenever, I mean, it's always a decision at this point when I'm like spend time with, with, you know, friends, family, loved ones, whatever, you know, it's always a decision to stop doing something. I should be technically like a responsibility, right? Like, oh, I should be working right now. Like I could literally fill every single minute of my life with work and still not be done with all of my work. So it's yeah. always a decision to stop working and go hang out with people. And then when I go, when I'm with them, all they complain about is that I don't hang out with them enough and you know, whatever, I'm on my phone too much. <laughs> so it's like, well, I really, I should have just uh, stayed home and played Overwatch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So no, I'm, I, yeah, I, but I will, I will just say, the institution of like this filter email process where it's like, Hey, and, and the big thing is, is they know that you care through this email. You say, boy, I really wish I could do it all the time, but you know, and, and, and just tell the truth and say, you know, you know, if I did every one of these, it would consume 40 hours of my week. Um, and I can't do that. It's not responsible. And eventually I would kill myself. Um, you know, as it continues to scale upwards. And so, you know, just, just try it. The worst that can happen is things stay the way they are. But it seems like, especially if you have this huge backlog, you could compose this email and send it to everyone who's in your backlog right now. And you would be able to gather like a big chunk of data that would maybe be super useful to you. Hmm. Yeah, I'm into it. That's my, so that's my challenge this week. Oh, you know, and one of the things you could do is, and I know designers do this sometimes at cons, is it's real quick, like, come in and, you know, pitch your game. Or, like, come in for a specific type of feedback. Maybe you could do that more at cons in like, kind of like a streamlined way. Um, that's interesting. Would, so what would it be? It's like a panel of, like, uh, hey, uh, come uh, pitch your games. A little bit. Well, and here's here's my uh, here's my analog, right? If I go to a con, and this happened at PAX because I only had two signings, I kept getting people coming up to me and saying, "Oh, oh, oh, hey, can you quick sign something for me?" And what I've realized is, if I say yes, then other people see that, and then they come over, and I end up standing in a hallway for half an hour, signing like thirty things. Because it's really hard to sign something standing up and getting their name right. And, you know, I don't have a table to set out. I have to find a pen or a Sharpie. But at a signing, I can sign like three, 400 people's books and have a little bit of talk with them in an hour and a half. I'll say, you know, I'll say like I, I it's, it's weird because I, I, I know that it's how difficult i mean i get it sometimes i'm walking around conventions and people come up to me and they're like hey would you sign this whatever and i'll oh it doesn't matter what i'm doing i'll always stop and sign something or talk to someone i I'm, i have no discipline about it and i know some people you know I, some people who are frankly like way more recognizable and, and famous than i am like I, they have very strict policies of like oh they'll tell people no i will not sign your thing i you need to go to my event or go to my signing or whatever and a part of me in the back of my mind i was like i know that they kind of feel like they have to do that because of professionalism or protecting their time or whatever but I always in the back of my head a part of me was always like 
that person's kind of being an asshole though. Like they really could just make that person stay by signing, by signing their thing. And I'll say like, I was, I walked around PAX this year enough with you where we, we literally were trying to get, we were late. I mean, you're trying to go to someone's panel and we literally could not progress through a hallway. We, We couldn't move. People would stand, they would form a line to talk to you in the hallway while we were like holding our backpacks and like plainly looking at our watches and trying to go somewhere. I mean, it was, it was, it was unbelievable. Like people had, they were rude. They were, they had, they were, uh, entitled. They were, they were disrespectful of your time. They were not picking up on social cues. I mean, I don't know how else, I don't know what else you could have possibly done other than, and, and you were so good about like setting a boundary for people and saying like, sorry, you really have to go to this thing. Like, otherwise we won't make the panel. It's, it is tricky. And I don't, I don't feel, I certainly didn't feel particularly, rooted at by anyone. I mean, there were a few people that maybe were a little insistent, but I kind of, I kind of get that, you know, because, well, hell, like I went, I went to fun home and I watched this show and it was, it was so good. And then afterwards, you know, the, the actors come out the stage door and, you know, and I wanted nothing to, than to like, have a moment of interaction with this father, the the person who played the dad. Like I really wanted it. And then I spent, but you know, as we're standing there and I'm like, but why do I want this? And because I know that people come up to me and they want to have this moment of interaction. And truthfully, like at a signing, I'm there, I'm prepared, I'm ready, I'm making myself available. And I do enjoy it. I legitimately like doing these signings and events and meeting these people and hearing their stories and and chat, chatting and joking and whatever. But I can't say that I always enjoy it always like off the cuff because sometimes I, I'm legitimately just hungry and I need to go buy a sandwich. <laughs> 